Hello, Moth listeners. This is a performance of Pivot, Spokane's version of The Moth, recorded live at the Washington Cracker Building on January 26, 2023. Each of the six storytellers you're about to hear will be introduced individually by the event's MC, Alyssa Ball. Well, tonight, since the theme is treasure, I want you to think of me as your little leprechaun guiding you across a rainbow into the pot of gold. In fact, we have six pots of gold tonight. And I know that's true because I've heard all these stories, but they're different every time because no notes. So this first storyteller is a friend of mine and super talented. I would like you to give a warm welcome to my friend, soon to be yours, Esteban Arrevia. Y'all, I've always wanted to do Pivot, so this is like a big thing for me. When I heard that the theme was treasure, I knew I had to tell this story because for me, it was the first moment I felt like I could fly. I have the opportunity to serve as the president and CEO of Spokane Pride, the organization that puts on the Pride Parade and Festival. Have you you been to it? I also uh, have the coolest job in the world. I'm the strategist for health justice and belonging at the WSU Elsinus Floyd College of Medicine. I have a really, really cool life. (laughs) And to be able to accomplish this much by 30, um, it's a dream, it's a dream. But it wasn't always like this. Uh, Today's story is complicated and dripping in context and features the Unlikeliest of protagonists for me, my paternal grandmother. We learned very early on that she was tough. She would tell us stories about how, as a young child, she would have to find her place with her friends by beating the crap out of them. Like if anybody messed with her five sisters, guess who they would send? Grandma. We learned very young, you did not mess with Guadalupe Revia. She was also loyal to our family. There's so many beautiful stories of her making tortillas in the morning and boiling pots of coffee and sending everybody with food as their day took them to wherever they had to go. Like, she made sure everybody was taken care of. She was also fiercely faithful. Her and my grandfather were one of the first pastors to start a Spanish-speaking congregation in Dinuba, California. And they did it. It's still going to this day, and it is a small, old-school, revival, Pentecostal, shout, shake your hands, fall on the ground, the whole thing. Like, she's still there in the same pew. Uh, But in 2004, my grandfather passed away, and that left her with our family house with no one to take care of. And so she moved in with, uh, with an uncle, and she's been with him ever since. Now I enter the story, and this is where things get complicated. Uh, In 2000, my parents decided to move my sisters and I to Santa Maria, California, near Santa Barbara, Pismo Beach, Central Coast, beautiful. And at the time, I thought it was the best move for me. Uh, I was bullied a lot as a kid. I was beaten up quite often. Um, I recognized from an early age that I liked boys, but I didn't have the language or the safety to describe what that experience was like, and so I was different. I stood out. I also loved color and fabric, and I loved parades. And actually, fun fact, I still love parades. Like, 
I, there would be moments where in our family driveway, you would catch me out with my little red flyer wagon, and I'd be dragging it around, and that'd be my parade float. And I mean, after every Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade, or the Rose Bowl, or our, Dinu our Dinuba Raisin Day Festival, like there I'd be marching my little parade around the house. That was my thing. Uh, I understood from a young age that who I was was in direct contrast to who my family wanted me to be. Uh, 2005, I was 15, and I decided that it was time to tell my parents that I was gay. And as soon as the words fell out of my mouth, I was instantly met with violence. And I recognized that home was no longer safe, so, so I left. 15. That same year, my parents and my sisters would move back to Dinuba, so I'd be there alone. Now, I need to pause here and say my family and my father and I, we have a beautiful relationship. We have fully reconciled. Y'all just don't get to hear that story here. <laughs> um, but please know that it exists. So 15, I would be homeless until I was 19, so four years. Um, you would think that I would take this new opportunity to live freely as an out young gay man. And instead, I found myself throwing my entire life into church. I ended up in what was called conversion therapy. It's an unofficial therapeutic practice used by religious organizations to make gay people straight. Uh, little did I know that I would be in that for seven years, six years. It was a long time. Um, I also became a pastor at, at 17. Why they did that, I have no idea. Um, but I would become a pastor of a new church plant. And little did I know that the two years that I would serve in that capacity that would be full of blaming and shaming for all the shortcomings that they said that I did, when in reality, looking back, they had, they had done it for me, against me. Um, and somehow my family caught wind. Like, I have no idea how it all happened, but within two days, I was out of there. And when I recognized that I was having to move back to Dinuba, it meant that I was having to go back to family that I didn't speak to. It meant that I was no longer gonna be on the streets. It meant that I was having the opportunity to start again. And it also meant that I was getting a new living assignment. I would become roommates with my grandmother. <laughs> oh yeah, 20-year-old me, frustrated, angry, heartbroken, in complete isolation, with now my grandmother, who did crossword puzzles all day long, received phone calls from church members for fun, and would turn on any John Wayne movie that she could possibly consume. Like, that was her day. Her and I were bunked. And it was tough. It was so tough, right? I went from this life of like full independence with nobody around to now I'm like driving old people to church every Sunday and we're going to do senior lunches and pill refills and like doctor's appointments. Like my life, that was my life. And, and somehow, some way, we, we, we made it work. One morning she called me into her room and she said, uh, I need to talk to you. And I started shaking. I, no one really knew the gay thing, and so I thought, here we, here we go again. I'm going to get kicked out of the house. And she's gestured to have me come sit next to her, and she goes, Stevie? She could call me Stevie. Y'all can't call me Stevie. Okay, so she, so she goes, Stevie, I had a dream about you. And it was so beautiful. Before you were two treasure chests. One was closed, one was open. The one that was open was overflowing with color and fabric and patterns, and gold, and you just worked through the treasure chest so easily, and so happily, it was so beautiful. So I asked her, well, what do you, what do you think it means? She was like, well, 
I know that you can't open up treasure chest number two if you don't work through number one. But Stevie was so beautiful. God has so many beautiful blessings ahead of you. And she turned the TV on, found AMC, and went on with the rest of her day. And I sat there, I'm like, what the heck does this mean? Well, like, treasure chest lady, what are you dreaming about? Little did I know that a year later, I would find myself enrolled at a university that would eventually hire me as their director of events. And my life would become design and sound and video and audio production. And I'd be curating student experiences and I'd be leading brands and I'd be working through brand identity and it was just a completely different life. I revisit this story often because words of affirmation and love were something I I hardly ever experienced. I think she recognized in that time of life I would choose who I would and who I would not be. And to receive that dream at that stage of life was the first positive image that had ever been rendered about me. Gosh, I wish my 15-year-old self could see where I am now. I wish he could know that the life of, of love and grace and mercy that I experience every single day is constantly overflowing in freedom. Sadly, Grandma probably won't be able to see the second treasure chest uh, come to fruition as she battles dementia, but I recognize that she had to open up treasure chest number one for me to get to number two. And I just, I know that when she and I get to talk about treasure chest number two, John Wayne's going to be riding in. <laughs> Love you, Grandma. Thank you. All right, so are you ready for the next storyteller? All right. Please get ready. Welcome to the stage, Sarah Carlson. It was a beautiful day. The sun was out. The sky was blue. I was in New York City for a business trip. And as a young mother, I didn't have many opportunities to go on business trips. So being in New York City was really special. I was there for a meeting, and during a scheduled break, I made arrangements to meet with some family members. We had a leisurely lunch, and after lunch, I walked back to my meeting. And I had some beautiful white shorts on, a polo shirt. I just remember it feeling so nice, and it was pretty special just being there. And at 18th and 8th, as I began to cross the street, I waited for that walking signal to signal that I could go across. And as I went across the street about two-thirds of the way, all of a sudden, I heard this big screeching sound. You know, the sound of a hot rod when it slams on the brakes? That noise, that shriek, that was the first moment I realized I had a huge, white, dirty SUV coming right at me. And, and that was the first moment I knew that my life was in danger. And as hit, pop, I flew. And in air, I realized that's why I ski raced. I grew up in a ski town in Colorado, and I did a lot of skiing. You know, whether after school or on the weekends, we skied. There was slalom, the tight turns, GS, the bigger turns, and downhill, the big, long turns. Well, I was bigger and, than most of the other girls, so downhill was my sport. I could go faster. I would go 
50 miles an hour down the mountain. And sometimes I'd catch my tip and I would wipe out and it'd be a big yard sale, stuff everywhere. And it was hard falling, but I had snow to fall on. And as I was flying through the air in New York City, I realized that's why I ski raced. I ski raced because I knew how to fall. I knew how to fly through the air, I knew how to fall. And I was like a rag doll spinning through the air like a cat looking for its place to land. And the voice in my head kept saying, break your fall, protect your head. And that's what I did. I caught my, myself, I, I landed with my right hand and fell back and I was seated in the street and I was dazed, I had a lot of pain and I looked down and those white shorts were red and part of my thigh had been ripped off. The skin, the muscle, I could see the fat was gone. The muscle was there and it was bleeding profusely. And my leg was at a really weird angle. And I thought to myself, damn, that's gonna need more than a couple stitches. I so wanted to get home. I was like, I'm not gonna make my flight tomorrow morning. I was scheduled to leave. And I had to get home. I had to get home because I'm a mother of four children, two sets of twins. And at that moment, Will and Sue had just turned two years old. And Ben and Charlie were five years old. And it was, I so wanted to get back to them. So as I sat there thinking, wow, I'm losing a lot of blood, that internal voice said to myself, you gotta relax, you gotta like slow your heart down, you're gonna bleed to death. And that's what I did, I laid down and just kind of relaxed into it. And that's when I could hear all this noise, there was noise of people screaming. The car that hit me kept going, it was a hit and run. But the traffic had stopped and people were yelling and I could hear all these noises, these taxis, honking, and then all of a sudden there was a taxi that came up on the sidewalk and then came down and almost hit me. It was a foot away from my head. And at that point, I thought, thought wow, I survived the hit and run, but now I don't know if I'm gonna survive getting hit by a taxi. There were so many miracles that day, and there were pedestrians that came to my help. And there were 10 of them that surrounded me and protected me, and they asked me, who are you, where are you from? I'm like, I'm Sarah, I'm from Spokane, Washington. <laughs> and they were so kind, they called my family and um, reached out for help and waited for me as the emergency medical crew arrived. There were so many miracles that day. What I didn't know at that time was my pelvis was in over 40 pieces. My joints had been blown out, my shoulders, my knees, my lower back, and I was told I'd never walk again. When I started walking, the doctor said, well, you're walking, but you gotta be really careful because there's a 100% chance you're going to have to have uh, replacements of your hips in um, three years. So at three years, I had nine surgeries, and that's when I was out walking on Manitou Park, and I, I was walking along and caught my foot, and I remember wiping out and feeling like, oh, I'm so mad, so much has been taken from me. And at that point, 
I just thought, you know what? I'm on borrowed time. I'm going to go ahead and enjoy these babies for as much as I can, meaning my hips. <laughs> so I, I started swimming. I started cycling. I started running, did triathlons. And, and people said, why do you do what you do? And I said, because I do it because I can. And then in 2014, I uh, finished my first Ironman. Uh, which is pretty exciting. But nothing compares to the thrill I got when it was a clear day in the fall after the accident. It was a beautiful day, and being able to walk my boys, Ben and Charlie, to the first day of school, my right side of my body couldn't even bend, and it was like a on crutches to get them to kindergarten is the best moment. That was the real victory. Thank you. So, former country mouse, current city mouse, coming to the stage to regale you all, Mr. Bean Johnston. Thank you. So it was 1996, I was in my late 20s, and I was living outside of Kalispell in a little town called Kyla. It was pretty rural. Uh, I was working as a wilderness instructor, the chief wilderness instructor, at a place called the Wilderness Treatment Center out in Marion, Montana. And what the Wilderness Treatment Center did was, it was a treatment center for addicts and alcoholics, young men and boys ages 14 to 24, and it had a wilderness component. I had never struggled with alcohol or drugs. I, I liked them both equally. And um, I had been hired on as the chief wilderness instructor basically due to my background in the military and uh, the fact that I had an outdoor recreation degree. So this particular story takes place in the Bob Marshall Wilderness. And if you're not familiar with the Bob Marshall Wilderness, that is the chunk of Rocky Mountains. If you look at the map of the United States, you see Glacier up in the north, and if you follow the Rocky Mountains down to Yellowstone, the chunk of Rockies between Glacier and Yellowstone is called the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex. It's made up of the Great Bear, the Scapegoat, the Lewis and Clark, and the Badger Two Medicine Wilderness areas. And it is remote. So on this particular trip, and in the Wilderness Center, we did 14-day trips in the winter and 21-day trips in the summer. And it was a rotating schedule. I was the only wilderness instructor, so I was out in the woods basically 100 to 150 days a year. A lot of time sleeping on the ground, carrying everything I needed on my back. And so this particular trip, I believe afterwards, looking at maps, we were about 35 miles from the nearest ungated road. So there were a couple roads closer, but they had gates and you needed a Forest Service key to open it. And we're walking down the trail, group of about 14 of us, a substance abuse counselor, myself, and 12 guys. And I was starting to get hungry. It was lunchtime. I could hear a river off to my right about maybe 50 yards away. We couldn't see it, but we could hear it. I, so I see a game trail that goes off the established trail, and I said, uh, hey, boys, let's go down to the, the river and see if we can find a spot to eat. And you guys can do a day-by-day -day meeting and, and uh, 
So we headed down the trail. And about, I want to say, 30 yards down the trail, we opened into this beautiful meadow. And it, it looked like it had been manicured. The grass had been eaten by the deer, and uh, so it looked really nice. And about 10 yards past that, maybe, we get to the river, and there's a big gravel shoal, and as we start taking our packs off, I realize very quickly that there's not enough room for all of us. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go back into this meadow, get a little bit of my own serenity time. Besides, it's day 11, and you guys stink like feet and butt. And um, so I go back into the meadow, and there's a, there's a log on one side of a tree that had fallen, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to park myself over on that log. I went over, I took my pack off, and I set it against the log, and as I did, I noticed a ball-faced hornet up on the log. Now, these are those little black and white guys that are like a step down from a murder hornet. Uh, they will make you hate your life if you get stung by one of them, but man, if you get stung by a whole nest of them, you'll want to reevaluate re whether you want to live at all. I mean, it is bad. So, out of reflex, I reached up and I squished this thing. It was, you know, it was uh, still kind of early in the summer, so it was moving kind of slow. It's cold out in the bob. It's up in the mountains, and uh, it didn't fly. I was able to squish it, and when I did, it fell down in this hole. And, I mean, the first thing I thought, these normally make paper nests, you know, up in the tree, but I've, I've run into ground nests of uh, ball-faced hornets, and the first thing I thought is, okay, I've just squished the fear pheromone out of this bee and dropped him down it back into his ground nest. And I'm about to have, like you used to see on the cartoons, a swarm in the shape of an arrow chasing me across the meadow with the sole intent of making me look like the elephant man, you know, stings all over. But I looked down in the hole, no bees, good sign, but I saw something in the hole. And it looked familiar, man-made, that's weird. So I reached down in, but you know, before I tell you what was down in the hole, I should probably share with you where I was at emotionally and <laughs> mentally at that point in my life. Now, you guys are finding this funny, but it wasn't funny because I was like late 20s. I'm living in Kyla, Montana, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Whitefish and Kalispell were cool places, but the problem was they'd already gone through their gentrification stage in the late 90s a bunch of rich people had moved in, bought up all the real estate, the prices were up. Nobody wanted to talk to anyone from outside the towns. So I was having a hard time meeting people, and 29-year-olds like to be social. We want to be going out and doing fun things. I would meet people and maybe get to know them a little bit, have some chemistry, and then I'd go out in the woods for three weeks, totally incommunicado, no cell phones, and when I come back, they'd be hanging out with other people. So it was just lonely. I, was, I loved what I did working with the kids, but I knew something was missing. I knew I needed something different. And I just, my, my brother can attest to this, he's here. I just witnessed my dog getting hit by a car in front of me. So I was, I'm living in a converted garage out in Kyla, Montana, no friends, just going to work. And it was rough. It was really rough. So I knew I needed something different. You guys curious what was down in the hole? <laughs> so I saw a red string, and I thought, what the heck is that doing in there? And I pulled out a brand new, it appeared to be brand new, Silva Ranger Compass. And I looked up. I know. I need a new direction. 
Thank you. <laughs> and I spent pretty much the rest of that trip with my mind blown. You know, it didn't, it didn't take me long to figure out how it got down in the hole because I thought, well, marmots and pikas and rock chucks, they like shiny things. It's got a mirror on it. Somebody lost it in the bob and a rock chuck found it, took it down his hole. That, that wasn't the mind-boggling part. What kind of alignment did the stars and the planets have to be in for me to be standing in that spot at that moment, looking down that hole to find a compass at a time when I needed new direction in my life, right? I mean, I was the whole trip, I was just thinking and pondering and had my mind blown. So I get back to the Wilderness Treatment Center. The first person I meet coming out to meet the trucks is Darcy, the intern. And she says, hey, Bean, guess what? Northwest Academy and Ascent over in Idaho have chief wilderness instructor positions open. You want the contact information? And I looked at Brandy, and I looked at the compass, and I looked at Brandy, and I said, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, Darcy. <laughs> sorry, my person's here. Her name's Brandy. Hi, Brandy. Anyway... So I, I said to Darcy, heck yeah. So I called over to Idaho to uh, Northwest Academy of Ascent and got the interview, got hired on the spot, moved to Sandpoint. And I don't know if any of you had been to Sandpoint in the late 90s, but that place was an outdoor recreation mecca for late 20 and early 30-something singles. <laughs> I, was, I had the biggest circle of friends ever. We were playing ultimate frisbee. We were going to reggae shows at the Panada. We were mountain biking on the weekends. We were wakeboarding in the summer, skiing in the winter. You name it, I had so many people in my community. I met an amazing woman who had become my ex-wife. <laughs> and I had a couple of kids with her. We moved over to Spokane before the divorce and raised a couple of great kids and um, ended up starting a, um, I got my master's degree in uh, social work and started a therapy practice I called True North Therapy and the motto was finding new direction. And um, I, I got to say my life really took a turn and I'm fairly confident, actually I can say with 100% surety, that I would not be standing here talking to you guys right now, telling you this story if I had not found this compass in a hole, next to a log, in a meadow, next to a river, off a game trail, off an established trail, 35 miles deep in the Bob Marsh wilderness. <laughs> Thank you. Coming up to the stage next, we've got... A storyteller who's gonna make you feel like a winner, hopefully. Heidi Lasher. Um, from about the time I was nine till my, well into my 20s, my grandpa would send me a $10 check for my birthday and Christmas. And every thank you card I wrote him was the same. It said, dear grandpa, thank you for the check. I put it in my savings account. Love, Heidi. <laughs> and I think that's why I found myself driving between San Francisco and Seattle on I-5. I was a cheapskate. I didn't like to spend money, and I didn't want to fly, so I drove that 12-hour distance just after college. I had been living in Seattle. I was visiting some friends in San Francisco, 
And I was about four hours into my drive home when I passed a casino. And I had, I'd had a dream the night before in my friend's couch in San Francisco. And in that dream, I'd won the jackpot at a casino slot machine. So at the beginning of this drive, I had made a deal with myself that if I happened to pass a casino on the drive, I would stop. But I just passed it, and the next exit wasn't for about 20 miles. So I um, had a little debate with myself. I'm a Libra, and Libras are represented by the scales. And um, Libras really like to deliberate decisions. And I had two sides of my personality with me in the car. Um, One side we'll call Hell No Heidi. (laughs) Hell No Heidi is like the dominant, and I mean, let's be honest, the dominant force in my life. Very practical, very reasonable, measured, logical, and um, kind of a know-it-all, but also a know-it-all. And um, (laughs) Hell No Heidi's like, you know what, it's like, that was a fun idea a couple hours ago, but like, we're, we've got 12 hours of driving today. We don't have the time. I was working at Starbucks. Like, I didn't have a lot of money. And gambling's like a bad idea. Grandpa would not approve. Hell yeah, Heidi on the other side. I was just incredulous. It's like, what? Like, we agreed. Like, today is our lucky day. We're going to win the jackpot. Like, what are you talking about? Hell yeah, Heidi is a little more like impulsive, fun, spontaneous. And um, the two sides of myself debated while I just drove. And I got to the exit, and it was pretty clear that Hell No was winning. And I thought I would just be driving on to Seattle. But hell yeah, grabbed the wheel, and (laughs) we turned around. We meaning just my personalities and me. I was alone in the car. I drove the 20 miles back to the casino, parked in the parking lot. This is not an impressive looking casino. It's just like a box. It might've been a Foot Locker before, I don't know. It, apparently it's like nice now, but there were a couple cars in the parking lot. It was like a Monday mid morning and it's really started to feel like a bad idea. But I walked inside and it was very dark inside and as my eyes adjust to the dark, I saw the slot machine from my dream. And hell no, Heidi was like, no, you didn't. Like, that's not, don't fall for that. You never buy the first house you see. So hell no was like, you know what you should do? You should walk around, kind of get the lay of the land. Like, you know, take your time, catch your breath. Like, don't get too excited. So I did. I went to the back of the casino, and I found a slot machine that accepts quarters, um, which is totally up my alley. And I started playing. And um, I wasn't doing too badly. I was like, you know, I was mostly losing, but winning a little bit. And pretty soon I was down about 75 cents. And (laughs) I I started to remember a little bit more of my dream. And um, in my dream, I'd won the jackpot. And there's a huge sign above the slot machine that says, to win the jackpot, you must play the maximum bet. And the maximum bet at this machine was $1. So the stakes are rising. And my heart is pounding. I, I 
I upped the ante to a dollar and I pressed the button. And the, these machines are kind of, I don't know how many of you gamble, but um, like I thought the slot machine would all have that lever thing, but these had, these had a lever, but they also had a button. And the button was super efficient. It's like a dopamine rush. You just wanted to push it. And I had majored in economics in uh, college, and I was so about efficiency. I was like, let's press the button. So I, um, I pressed the button, and I lost the dollar. I put another dollar in, pressed it, lost it, pressed it, lost it. Now I'm down. I, I did it until I was down about $4.75. And hell no was like, you know what, let's go. That was fun, but like, this is a really bad idea. So I started to walk out. And I had to weave through the casino and get to that front door and, and then see that slot machine from my dream. And hell's yeah, hell yeah, is like, we've got to try this. Humor me. Like, let's just do this. And so hell no and hell yeah had to make a deal. Um, and the deal was I would cut myself off at $20. $20 is um, a year's worth of income from grandpa. So I decide right then and there that it's going to be $20. I'm not going to lose any more than that, but we'll have a little fun. So I sat down, and I pressed the button, and I got a cherry, a cherry, and a lemon. Pressed the button again, and I got a gold bar, a gold bar, and a lemon. I had one more try. I took a really deep breath tried to channel all that good luck for my dream. I pressed the button, and I got a cherry, a cherry, and a banana. <laughs> so it was over. And um, I stood up to leave. And hell yeah, it's like, this can't be right. Like, something's wrong. Like, we've got to try one more time. And hell no is like, this is where it all begins. Like. <laughs> You, you know, you cross your limit, and then you start becoming a gambler, and then you become an alcoholic, and then you lose your job, and your family leaves you, and you die in jail. And um, so uh, it, took some, it took some work to get Hell No to sit down one more time. But hell yeah, I remembered a super minor detail from the dream, and that was that, like, I'd pulled the lever. So I sat down got out another $5, put it in, and I pulled the lever. And you know what happened? I won the jackpot. <laughs> the machine goes absolutely bonkers. It's just like ding, 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 ding. Sirens, lights, everything. All the like ne'er-do-wells are coming and surrounding me. And I'm just like, holy crap. I mean, it's going on. And if this was a traditional slot machine, the coin thing would have been just like overflowing with quarters. Um, but it was a new one, and it just like spit out this receipt. <laughs> and um, so I took my receipt to the cashier, and the cashier handed me $300. <laughs> and hell yeah, it's like, hell yeah, we did it. Like, I'm so psyched. That was so fun. And like, it was great and vindicated. And hell knows, like, we just made a 15-fold return on investment. Grandpa would be so proud. Like, it was so great. And really, I got in my car. I drove the rest of the, rest of the way to Seattle. It was so great. Um, but there was a little coda to the story, and that is that a couple hours later, I decided to stop for a, 
a Coke at McDonald's, and um, I was still feeling so lucky. And I, um, I go into the McDonald's, and they have this like play-to-win game, some kind of promotion. <laughs> and I get a Coke, and I'm like, I'm gonna take this out to the parking lot for a little privacy. And I, um, there's a little tab at the bottom of the Coke cup, and I pull the tab, and I want a Big Mac. Please welcome from the south up to the northwest to the stage, John Ward. Now, I come from a little place called Texas. Can you say that with me? You see the boots. You see it. You see it. It is what it is. Now, I have this issue, or I guess I should say I have this reoccurring issue, and I think a lot of you have battled with this, and it's happily ever after. It's, I'm going to get somewhere, and I'm going to feel fulfilled. I'm going to get my diploma. I'm going to go to college, and then I'm going to Maybe get a job, meet somebody, have some kids. 401k. Social security and a cane, right? Now, my story begins in 1994, around the time Heidi had won that jackpot. And I have an American father who served 23 incredible years in the Army. God bless him and the many men and women that have sacrificed their time and their lives to ensure that we have the freedoms we have today. Now, this story also involves a full Honduran mother. I mean, literally. I mira, pobrecito. You're going to figure it out. She was full Honduran, barely could speak English, and she was also full of <laughs> Now, my father and my mother gifted me the greatest gift, the best, the biggest treasure of my life, and that was in 1997 on September 1st. His name is Michael Gabriel Ward, and he is a Navy sailor. He recently had won Sailor of the Year last year. He is now married, and he's got a kid on the way. Now, having a mother who was, she's been through a lot, she's gone through a lot, and a father who was constantly on deployment, I was forced with the daunting task of raising my brother. How many of you guys had to look out for somebody? It's not easy. What that means is I can't mess up. I have to ensure that everything is straight so that my brother doesn't suffer the consequences of me failing. It's hard. So you don't really get a childhood, and that can sometimes feed resentment. Now, my saving, our saving grace was my grandparents. God bless any grandparent who provides for their grandchildren. They made sure we had spring break, summer break, fall break, winter break, and so on. But during the school year, I was left to raise my brother. But my grandparents also provided me an avenue to express myself. My brother was academically inclined in every way, very smart, brilliant. I'm the creative. <laughs> you see it, boots and skinnies? Come on now. Now, music was always my first love. I started playing the guitar, and my favorite artist is the Evergreen State's very own Alan Stone. I kid you not, he, was, he is my biggest inspiration, and honestly, the whole reason I have a sound I have and the music I do. Now, I'll get to him later. By the grace of God, through the battles and the tribulation of taking my brother to school, dropping him off at home, I'd had time to express myself when I had some, some time alone. 
I graduated high school. I'm a fraction of the way there, guys. Degree, girl, job, cane. We're almost there. <laughs> Feels pretty good. It's a, a stretch. It's coming. But around the time I graduate, my father decides I'm going to hang my hat and I'm going to retire from the military. And we're going to move to Houston. And when we get to Houston, I'm going to give this college a go. Like, I'm going to give this a shot. And I drop out. Like, I drop out. That did not work out for me at all. I decide to move back home and pursue music. And if I'm being honest, I fell right on my face. I come back home to Houston, and I decide to go to technical school. And I got a big old tool belt. I'm fixing air conditioning now. Yeah, I got a big boy job. But I recognized the hazards that came with that job. A lot of my senior techs couldn't run a 100-meter dash if you paid them. It's hard to breathe. You're breathing in insulation, so I get out. And around this time, my brother had joined the Navy, and he had been doing really well for himself. He was on his way to getting married. I get into sales. Now, what they don't tell you about sales is you do really well. They expect you to do well the next week and the next week. So I became the number one salesman and a part-time alcoholic. How about that? A lot of y'all can speak to that. Come on now. I get out of that because it just wasn't beneficial to me whatsoever. Now, this is at the dawn of 2020, and I get the unique opportunity to move to Spokane, Washington. Make some noise for yourself, Spokane. <laughs> Thanks to my good buddy, Cody Duncan. He's actually in the house tonight. He's the main reason I was able to get myself up here. God bless him and his family. And I hit the ground running. I started dropping singles. I started dropping these music videos. I felt like I was really on the course to doing something bigger than myself. And one late night in October, I get a phone call from my brother, and he's crying. So I start crying, and I'm like, what's wrong? And he says, John, uh, dad's not your biological father. Now, mind you, my father gave his entire life for me. He gave it all for me. And a week later, my father called me to tell me himself. Things are not feeling very good. I'm far from home. I have no family in Spokane. Everything's in Texas. 2021 comes along, and there's a gentleman in town by the name of T.S. The Solution. He's a local artist, one of the most talented hip-hop artists in the city. God bless him and his wife. They do incredible work from here all the way to Seattle. And they gave me a unique opportunity to do a panel at Lucky You Lounge in the fall. I'd be a fool if I said no. Now, the summer is coming to a close in 2021, and I get a call from my buddy Tyler Poole, and he says, John, you're not going to believe this. You remember, the, you know how you like the dude that goes, yeah, I got you tickets to see Alan Stone at Lucky You Lounge a week before my show for the panel. I get to see Alan Stone, and let me tell you, it was the greatest night of my life. The greatest night of my life for a second. And then I drove home, and I realized that Alan Stone is no different than me or any of you here. He was having drinks. He was butchering his lyrics sometimes. He was human. I've been listening to him since 2009. The next week, I step on stage to perform for that panel wearing this exact same sweater. I wanted to wear it tonight to show you what I looked like that night. I had one of the best performances I had ever had in my life. I sang as hard as I could because I knew Alan would. I sang as hard as I could because I knew when I was a kid playing the guitar, taking care of my brother, I would when I got the chance. 
I got off stage and I felt like I had made it. And I'm here to tell you that none of this would have happened if it wasn't for the treasure of my life. Born in 1997 on September 1st, Michael Gabriel Ward. Because in 2021, I was about to pack my bags and go home. After I found out about my dad, I got an opportunity to go home to Texas to seek closure about this, about my father. And my mother refuses to tell me anything. Mind you, my mom tried to convince me that he's been my dad my whole life. I just wasn't paying attention to it. Mira Ponking, he's your father, okay? I know that. I know he's my dad. I come back home from Texas. I was locked in a hotel room because my girlfriend at the time caught COVID. So I couldn't see my grandparents. I couldn't see anybody. It was a wasted trip. I'm on the South Hill reading a book called The Greatest Miracle in the World. And I call my brother in a panic. This is January 1st, January 2nd of 2021. And I'm like, Michael, I think I'm going to come home. Things aren't working out. The team that I was working with, you know, we're just not communicating as good as I'd like to think we should be. I, I'm freaking out. I, dad's not my dad. Mom doesn't give a shit. Like, I think I'm going to go home. And my brother stops me and he goes, you would be doing yourself a disservice if you ever made your way back home to Texas. You've laid more ground making this move than you ever would have. And if you felt like you were leaving something behind, you would have never left in the first place. Me and dad kind of, not saying the military is easy, there's risks, but there's also guarantees and benefits. Housing, retirement, a GI Bill. You get some things in return for your sacrifice. But you deciding that you're going to, you know, pluck on six strings and figure this thing out in a place you've never been, me and dad would never do that shit. <laughs> no. And what I realized after getting off the stage wearing this sweater is that if it wasn't for that boy born on September 1st of 1997, if it wasn't for the kid I gave up my entire childhood to make sure that he had a good one, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have the opportunity to live out my childhood dream and meet my childhood hero that I thought died when I was raising him. Thank you. We're in the, the final stretch, all the way to home base. Uh, and the next storyteller has a sweet one for you. Please welcome to the stage, Dick Mandeville. I learned to count by fives at a very early age because of them. Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, and Yogi Berra. They were my favorite players on my favorite team. And to me, they represented the holy trinity of baseball card collection. And baseball cards cost a nickel a pack. So when I was still too young to see the top of my dresser, I would gather pennies up there and count them. And whenever I hit a multiple of five, I'd sweep the pennies off and put them in my pocket and ask for permission to go down to the grocery store and buy cards. My mom saying yes 
was a really big deal because I was only like six years old and the trip was all the way across town, nearly four and a half blocks. <laughs> I'd head down to the grocery store, which was called Mandy's. Mandy was my Uncle Bill. <laughs> Technically, he was young Mandy. The original Mandy, my grandfather, had come to Montana from New York at the turn of the century, following the woman he would eventually marry, my grandmother, Maybell. They came with hope, ambition, and allegiance to the New York Yankees, which they passed on to their five sons. My dad was the third. He passed it on to his three sons. I'm the third. When I got the cards, I would head home, hoping to make it all the way back before I opened them. But usually somewhere between the Congregational Church and St. Mary's Catholic Church, I would break down my first experience of spiritual sojourning. And I'd take the cards and turn them backwards and carefully peel the wax paper open, revealing a rectangular piece of bubble gum. It was thin. It was as brittle as a thin pane of glass, but didn't taste as good as that. <laughs> so instead of eating the gum, I would use it as sort of a bookmark and would use it to slowly reveal the features on each card, hoping for Mickey or Whitey, or Yogi. It never was. <laughs> Just a couple years later, our dad said he was going to go on the most amazing trip imaginable. With some of his friends from town, he was going to get on the Northern Coast Limited Railroad and ride all night long back east to Minnesota. where on successive days, they would see a college football game, a professional football game, and then a professional baseball game with the Minnesota Twins playing the New York Yankees. He was gonna get to see the Yankees play. We were thrilled. None of us had ever seen a professional sporting event. And then it got even more exciting when he said, he asked if we would like him to bring us back a souvenir and I immediately said, what's a souvenir? <laughs> and he explained it, and one of my brothers suggested, well, how about a baseball? And hope above hope, how about a baseball with a signature of one of the players, any player, didn't matter. And he gave the parental, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> the day came for him to get on the train with his friends and they rode all night long on that train from Montana, probably playing a good deal of poker and drinking a good deal of scotch. When they arrived in the Twin Cities, Dad found out the address of the hotel where the Yankees were staying, and on the way there picked up three baseballs. He entered the lobby and was really confused 
because to his surprise, no one was wearing a Yankees uniform. <laughs> so he looked around, confused, wondering what his next step should be when the elevator doors opened and out stepped Yogi Berra. Yogi had a singular appearance. We'd seen his picture a couple of times in the Billings Gazette. He was striking. He was 5'7". He weighed 185 pounds. He had been the MVP in the American League three times. He had won 10 World Series championships, all with the New York Yankees. But he was a singular-looking man. He was 5'7", 185 pounds, had a head the size of a Michelin truck tire. except less shapely. <laughs> and in fact, Yogi had said, yeah, I'm ugly. Never saw anybody hit a baseball with their face. <laughs> it was definitely Yogi. Dad went up to him and said, are you Yogi Berra? <laughs> Yogi said, nope. <laughs> and he turned and walked away. We have only my dad's account of what happened next. <laughs> 16 years later, I met Yogi Berra, and I told him this story, but he didn't remember it. So dad's version goes like this. Yogi's walking away. He goes up behind him. He grabs him by the shoulder, and he turns him around. My dad was 5'8". He towered over. <laughs> he looked at Yogi, and he said, wait just a damn minute, you son of a bitch. I rode all night long on a train from Montana. You want me to go back and tell my boys that Yogi Berra wouldn't sign their baseballs. Yogi said, give me the baseballs. <laughs> he signed them, and then he said, come with me. And he led Dad down a corner, turned down a corridor to a door, through the door into a bar, a private bar, occupied by the New York Yankees where he introduced dad to seven or eight players who each in turn heard a story about a train ride from Montana. <laughs> the first person he introduced him to was Whitey Ford. Whitey signed the ball, and then Yogi introduced him to Mickey Mantle, who, according to dad, before signing the ball, complained that as was his custom, Whitey had already signed in the best spot. He signed it, and then there were six others. The one Dad spent the most with was a young pitcher named Bill Kunkel, who spent most of the time asking Dad about fly fishing in Montana. Dad got back on the train and returned. He unpacked. He got out the three baseballs and handed one to each of us. My older brothers grabbed theirs and immediately ran upstairs to their bedroom and put them away. That's, that's why they still have theirs. <laughs> Jim says his is in a safe. Webb moved recently. He says he's pretty sure his is in a trunk somewhere. The only reason I have mine is that when Dad handed it to me, I immediately slammed it into my mitt, grabbed a bat, and headed out in the yard to hit it around. My dad reached out 
grabbed me by the shoulder, turned me around and said, wait just a damn minute. You little son of your precious mother. I rode all night long on a train to get that. That's for looking at, it's not for playing with. Now go put it away. You never know. Someday it might be worth something. I've told that story to a lot of people and they usually ask two questions. Do you still have the ball? And what do you suppose a ball like that's worth? One friend even asked, offered to make a trade. My ball straight across for his mother. <laughs> but near as I could tell, she couldn't hit or throw, so I turned him down. <laughs> the ball sits on a shelf above the desk where I spend time every morning. It's turned so that I see the signature of Yogi with Mickey underneath it. <laughs> Occasionally I rotate it to look at Whitey or one of the other guys. Next to it is a photograph of my dad holding a bottle of scotch. In the adjacent room there's a notebook that contains the 1963 Topps baseball cards of every guy who signed that ball. It took a while to collect those. Uh, we've decided that our son is going to get the cards. Our daughter, Chelsea, will get the ball, along with some advice that I picked up from their grandfather to hold on to it, because you never know. Someday it might be worth something. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to a performance of Pivot, Spokane's version of The Moth, recorded live at the Washington Cracker Building on January 26, 2023. For more information on Pivot and its upcoming events, visit pivotspokane.com. <laughs>